Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jared Knott is with us today. He was a combat officer in Vietnam, a sales and marketing director in the home improvement industry, and along the way, a working writer, and still is. He has a book out entitled Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, 39 Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. That is our topic today. Welcome, Mr. Knott. Good to be here. Thank you very much. It's an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, first thing is, what is the butterfly effect? Uh, yes, there was a mathematician, uh, Lorenz, and he was uh, one of the leading mathematicians, one of the, by the way, the creators of chaos theory. And he was at his peak, I guess, back in the 1950s and 60s. And he was uh, working one day on a particular uh, mathematical problem, which is being used to predict the weather. And it was a number with a decimal, and then like, uh, I think it was like 18 different numbers behind the decimal. And it was taking a long time for the computers of the day to run the number. He was thinking, what you is, uh, he's 18 numbers. It's just a tiny, 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 tiny little fraction out there. Then we just lob off five or six of those numbers, just make it like 12 or 13 or even 10. And that could run a lot faster. And it could make that much of a difference in the final outcome because they're just tiny little fractions of a number anyway. So he did that. And he was amazed at how much difference that had made the, uh, first uh, change in a line of progression can multiply and multiply and multiply. And at the end of that progression, there can be a dramatic uh, difference. And so he uh, came to the conclusion uh, that uh, when you applied to the weather, that he, and he overstated it slightly, uh, that if a, a butterfly flapping its wings down in Brazil uh, can set off a chain reaction that a year and a half later can lead to a tornado in the state of Texas. That states that overstates it slightly, but there was that was the basic idea that there was a chain reactions happening in the weather all the time, and a tiny little uh, difference can make a huge difference, you know, a, a year, year and a half uh, later. And so, I made this presentation uh, to one of the big uh, mathematical conventions, and that's where the uh, phrase was coined. And what we've done here, we've taken that same principle and applying it uh, to the uh, field of history. And we find many, many different examples of uh, tiny mistakes that had huge, huge consequences. And, of course, also parallel to that is the old adage coming down from Benjamin Franklin that for one of the nail, the shoe was lost. For one of the shoe, the rider was lost. For one of the rider, the battle was lost. For one of the battle, the empire was lost. The empire was lost all for the want of a nail. Okay, that's a nice little saying. And that's a nice little mathematical formula, 
But how often does it really happen that a tiny mistake can cause an entire empire to collapse and change the course of history? Well, 39 times. Actually, it's a lot more than that, but I've recited 39 times in the book. Uh yeah, you're you're right. It it, it sounds like you know it it, it sounds uh, going way too far with the bi- butterfly effect. But the mathematical evidence that you, you cited a few minutes ago, if you're going out twelve or thirteen places, well, wow, I mean that, that's what a millionth, uh, uh, one yeah. millionth. And yeah. if if he observed significant changes farther down the road, well, I you know there 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 we have it. <laughs> so so why why. Why not? Now, uh, the book then is, the, the bulk of the book does go into 39 of these little sort of tiny things or, or, or single things that turned out to change the course of history. And you begin with one interesting thing. I didn't know this. What little mistake doomed the Titanic? Yeah, that's a, a fascinating story. And there are several things going on with the Titanic. They had a fire down in the coal bins that was actually scorching the right front part of the ship, the uh, starboard uh, bow part of the ship. It was the way the ship was uh, there at uh, Doctor Harbor. People could not see it from the dock side, but there was this big scorched area there on the bow. And the the White Star Line could not afford to cancel the voyage. It would have uh, put them into bankruptcy. So they were going ahead and kind of hoping nobody noticed the major problem. One of the reasons that Captain Smith was racing across the Atlantic so uh, so aggressively was because he wanted to get to New York as soon as possible so they could then deal with the fire. Uh, but that was those were kind of all background items. Uh, the key, the tiny mistake that would happen there is that when they were they had a particular officer, second officer assigned to the ship, and they decided to uh, change him for another officer. I think his name was uh, Lighthower. And the, uh, the officer leaving duty forgot to pass along the key to one of the storage lockers to the new officer taking over. Well, in that storage locker were a pair of binoculars. They called them glasses back then. Binoculars that the men up there in the crow's nest used to observe the, the uh, looking for icebergs on the open sea at night. By that particular night, the iceberg was a black iceberg. It was difficult to see to begin with. And they had to just use the naked eye to try to protect the ship from running into any kind of catastrophe. Now, after the, uh, of course, the tragedy took place, there was a, uh, an investigation, official investigation in New York. And uh, one gentleman who was in the crow's nest uh, survived, and he was uh, talking about not having the binoculars. He'd seen them three or four days earlier, but they did not have them at the time that particular night. Would that have made a difference, he was asked. Yes, it would have made a difference. How much of a difference? Well, enough of a difference that we could have gotten out of the way. Well, just that one little mistake, they could have avoided the iceberg. When they saw the iceberg, they called down to the pilot there to change direction. He turned to the left. By the way, the propellers were a little bit too small because it's a large ship, but they turned to the left, and they almost missed the iceberg, but it scraped down the right side, the starboard side, and broke open three, I think it was three or four, of the bulkheads of the airtight, watertight chambers, and that was enough to fill up the uh, front part of the ship, which caused it to dip down, which caused the ship's rear to go up in the uh, in the air. It cracked, and, it, of course, it, it sank. But if they just uh, turned a minute sooner or two minutes sooner, or even maybe 45 seconds sooner, they would have missed the iceberg altogether, and the entire tragedy would have been avoided. Huh. You know, you, you when I was reading that, 
you, you feel pain. Wait a minute. Just some binoculars? Yes. <laughs> so it, it's yes. just, it, it is, but, but this is, this is really, I, I mean, we can call it the, the tragedy of history or just the, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the scrupulousness of what goes on in, in, in human affairs. That's sort of the moral of, of your book. Let's get to the next example. What was the quote, yeah. unopened letter? What is the, what was the unopened letter that saved America? Yes, uh, that had to do with the Revolutionary War, and uh, the United States cause was pretty much knocked on its rear end at that point. We'd been uh, driven out of uh, New York. Uh, there was a, a desperate uh, situation. The uh, English, uh, with the Hessian uh, troops, uh, is, uh, kind of supporting their cause, had us greatly outnumbered. Uh, we'd lost uh, several battles in a row, and uh, it looked like it was hanging by a thread, uh, one or two more uh, uh, defeats in the entire United States uh, Revolution might have just collapsed. Uh, George Washington planned a very bold attack on Trenton. He had two different parties that were supposed to attack uh, from two different directions. It was extremely, extremely cold weather. Uh, one of the parties uh, had to turn back because of the weather and other conditions. And so he, but he was able to cross with these cold uh, ships uh, in, a, in the very uh, tough, difficult blizzard conditions. And he was marching through the snow. Uh, some of his men, uh, their feet were fr freezing, and they had two or three men that uh, literally froze to death as a part of the uh, the march there to Trenton. But a spy had gone to General Rawl, who was the commander of the Hessians, the troops there, of course, being uh, professional troops that had been hired by the British, and he delivered a letter to be given to General Rawl. Well, the letter was given to General, uh, Colonel, I'm saying General, Colonel Rawl. He took the letter and he put it in his pocket. This was uh, Christmas uh, Christmas Eve, and the general was there enjoying wine. I think general, the colonel was there enjoying wine. He was uh, playing a chess. He was uh, playing cards. He never opened the envelope. And in the envelope was saying, George Washington and his troops are going to be attacking tonight. Never opened the envelope. Uh, never did, but became alerted. The attack came in the middle of the night. Uh, took them by surprise. It was a fierce battle. The American uh, troops uh, fought uh, fought well. Uh, they killed uh, several of the Hessians and captured them. No American soldier was killed, although several, the two or three, had frozen to death. And in the battle, uh, Colonel Rawl, who was a professional soldier and an excellent soldier, otherwise was shot and then mortally wounded and, and died uh, a short time later. But if he'd opened up the envelope, had his troops armed and ready and in the streets, uh, it might have been George Washington that was killed. Might have been the uh, Hessians that were victorious, and that might have been enough to uh, to crush the, uh, the American cause. You know, let me put a plug into the book for those parents who have, uh, let's just say boys, who are 13, 14 years old, who aren't doing their history homework. And they, they you know, they, they've got their classes and they just don't see the point of what happened 200 years ago. And, and what you need to do is make the history into a compelling story. And I think that something like uh, the letter that wasn't opened, that that that, that was put, and, and they found it on his body, right? The, the, right. the next That's day, right. after, they right. found it on his dead body. Uh, that parents, that is a way to make the stories of the past compelling to to your kids. The binoculars on on the Titanic. What about this? How did Adolf Hitler survive an assassination attempt in 1939? 
Yes, he. The article there is uh, the title of a particular chapter is Hitler the Unkillable, and there was a time after time after time when he came very close to death. Back in World War One, he was wounded, but he managed to avoid, of course, being killed there. There was also the Putzt. Uh, 1928, I believe it was. He was uh, uh, a dislocated shoulder. A number of people and making this big march uh, where were killed. He avoided being killed there. He seemed to. And also, this was a, a very close call in 1939. And you would think, uh, I see in the article there, it's almost as if there was some demonic force that was protecting him all these years. And until, of course, he committed suicide in his bunker in April of 1945. But uh, what happened... Uh, 1939, the war had just begun just uh, a couple of weeks earlier. They invaded Poland. They were having a big meeting in a beer hall there uh, in uh, in Berlin. And um, there was a man who with great ingenuity had uh, slipped into that beer hall night after night. He was up in the upper part of her chambers, and he was carving away a section and planning a, uh, a large bomb, a large explosive, uh, above where Hitler was going to be and the other uh, speakers were going to be uh, placed. And he set the timer uh, for the bomb to go off at a, a, a certain time when the big meeting was going to take place, the big speeches were going to take place, just as right in the middle of the, uh, of, of the event. And he, uh, he said it, but the, what happened was there was a uh, fog that evening and they were not going to be able to fly back in, in the fog. Uh, they, were, uh, they were going to have to take the train. It was going to take longer. So Hitler left, Hitler and his entourage uh, left the meeting about uh, 15 minutes sooner than would have been expected. And just uh, it was just 13 minutes before the bomb went off. If, the, if he had been there, it would have, the uh, upper overhead bulkhead would have all collapsed down on him and killed number of people, the big explosion and the collapse of the roof overhead, but he would have been killed in the explosion. And uh, 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 Hermann Goering would have taken over. Uh, and hit, Hermann Goering was actually looking to find peace. He had tried to uh, avoid the invasion. He had tried to negotiate. He was uh, not quite as fanatical, but was definitely not as fanatical as Hitler. Hitler was known for his maniacal personality. And uh, von Ribbentrop, his uh, foreign minister said that uh, whenever he presented different options to Hitler, he knew that one way of pleasing Hitler was to recommend the most radical course, the choices that were in front of them. And that was uh, Hitler. He was always going for the most radical choice uh, time after time. But he would have been killed. Uh, Hermann Goering would have taken over. And uh, the war might have been brought to a negotiated peace. Not too long after that, it would have been a different uh, world altogether, except for those 13 minutes and the fog that evening. Uh, so, yeah, let me mention some of your examples are things that didn't happen because of some chance thing, like, like the fog that you're talking about. And what, what, how would history have changed if, if such and such had happened? Uh, and and we, we, can, we can imagine that the Holocaust wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have taken place, That's correct. I think. That's correct. Okay, let, let, let's jump ahead uh, in time to something that many actually living people in our audience have a, a clear memory of. What caused the Challenger disaster? Yes, uh, there were a number of engineers who saw the problem coming 
and they uh, wrote memos, and they were uh, some of them were uh, confronting their superiors to the point almost of insubordination that there was a danger in the way the system was working. Now, when the temperatures were warm, uh, the uh, O seals worked uh, just fine, but in cold temperatures, they tend to harden, and they did not allow they allowed for an escape of the gas, uh, which of course led to the disaster. So that the situation was. Uh, superiors uh, not listening to information coming from below them uh, that they had a potential problem. Of course, there was uh, NASA was under pressure to meet certain deadlines that already had several postponements uh, to that particular launch. And so rather than uh, it may have thought that people were being overly cautious, so they went ahead anyway with the with the launch. And of course, with tragic disaster, there was a, a huge leak, uh, a fuel leak at the side, uh, which uh, caused the explosion which caused the death of the people involved there. And the role of the story is that um, sometimes the greatest wisdom comes from the people closest to the problem at the ground level, at the lower level, that information sometimes is coming up through the ranks. So uh, you should be paying close attention to what's uh, happening down below as well as what's happening above in terms of guidance and wisdom and information that's relevant to decisions. And, and I think that is sort of the moral of all of these stories, right? careful planning, uh, be be clear, have good procedures in place. And one of the remarkable things about a lot of these is these are not unusual procedures, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not as if you are advising we have to micro, micro, micromanage every single element of a planning process. When we're talking about things like just have binoculars when you're up there in the, uh, uh, on, on the deck, and, and doing observations. Uh, so sometimes the, the, the negligence that you're talking about is actually quite normal. I mean, commonplace. Uh, negligence is not highly technical. Uh, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not even unusual. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Okay, let me give you another example. What do we know of the discovery of dynamite. Yes, and there was a, a kind of a piece of good luck. Uh, Alfred Nobel uh, was, of course, working and trying to find a way of stabilizing nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin, very powerful explosive, but very unstable and very dangerous uh, to work with. And you had to transport it 50 miles, 60 miles, 100 miles, 500 miles to a job site. It could be uh, uh, deadly, dangerous. Uh, if it got jarred, it could explode. So he was uh, uh, unpacking the, uh, the dynamite, uh, the nitroglycerin, I should say, and he spilled it, and it spilled into the packing material that you know, it was being used to carry in, to put the bottles in, and it, uh, instead of blowing up, it formed a kind of a putty substance, and he found that um, if he mixed it, he, it still maintained its explosive power, but it's far more stable. And so uh, that was the invention of uh, dynamite. If he, as he spilled it, 
Of course, it might have blown up. It was cold that particular day. His fingers were kind of numb, and uh, and we spilled it because it could have been a disaster, but it was a lucky break in the right direction. Now, what happened, too, he had a brother who died uh, several years, so many years before him, and the newspapers uh, made a mistake, and they published a story that Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, had been the one who had died. And there were uh, obituaries being published in newspapers, and in a rare situation, he got to then see what his own obituaries were going to say about him. And they called him the merchant of death, okay, and the inventor of dynamite, because the dynamite and explosives being used uh, in uh, war applications, leading to the maiming and killing of many different people. So that's the way he was going to be remembered, as the man who had, uh, who had put the devices together, the explosives together, killed a lot of young men and maimed a lot of young men, the merchant of death. Well, he was horrified of that. And so what can I do? What can I do to change my reputation? And of course, I came up with the idea, of course, of the Nobel Prize and uh, for, of course, of peace as well as for science uh, and uh, literature and so on like that. And if it had not been for that uh, misunderstanding with the press, the Nobel Prize system would not exist today. And of course, the reputation is far, far better uh, than, it, uh, than it would have been otherwise. Okay, okay. I, I, I mean, just, if I can interject, my point you brought up before in terms of preventing mistakes, small mistakes as well as big mistakes, uh, there's a book, I uh, discussed it in, the, in my book, uh, the book is entitled The Checklist Manifesto, and it's written by a man named Atoll Gawande. And that book has uh, possibly saved more lives than any other book in history. Hmm. And the situation was this. Uh, Atoll Gawande, medical doctor, and he was uh, looking at the situation with the operating room, and a lot of uh, mistakes were happening in the operating room, which was leading to fatalities. He was saying the existing system was you get about six or seven or eight years of experience underneath your belt, then you go into the operating room and you go by gut instinct and uh, make sure that uh, the operation turns out as well as it can. But he says we're human and we will miss things. So what can we do to eliminate or greatly reduce mistakes? I wonder how they handle the same situation over in the airline industry. There are people who are having to make decisions with great complexity, uh, almost uh, a complexity beyond what human beings can handle. I wonder how they've handled the same kind of question. So I went over there to Boeing and discussed it with the officials over there and went back to an accident, a famous accident in the industry that happened way back in 1935. It was a forerunner of the Flying Fortress, I think at the time it was called the B-299. Anyway, two of the uh, of Boeing pilots, uh, uh, the pilot in particular was one of the very best pilots that Boeing had. They had an accident, the plane uh, flew up, it stalled, and pancaked down to kill both the pilot and the co-pilot. And when they did the investigation, they found that it was a simple matter. They had uh, failed to turn off the elevator yoke, which is part of the uh, automatic pilot system that forced the nose of the airplane up, caused it to stall, and then it fell down. So what can we do to prevent this kind of mistake from happening again? Again, these were their best pilots, very well-respected uh, pilots in the industry. And they came up with a simple system that went back to um, a, a, uh, an ancient tool, the humble checklist. Yeah. So before pilots are taking off, and of course this is true today, here's the checklist. We have 30 to 7 items on it. We have 43 items on it. And the pilot and co-pilot go through the checklist, item by item, okay, turn such and such a dial to such and such a position, check, check, turn off the switch to the elevator yoke, check, check. And they go down to all these different items. 
human beings can only think about one thing at a time. You have to make sure that you think about those 37 items, those 43 items, long enough to make sure they're done correctly. And, of course, the pilot and co-pilot cross-checking each other. Well, they, he took that system back to the medical field and applied it to the operating room. The, another thing they found out as a part of the system is that if everybody in the operating room knows everybody else's name, that improves communication, and that also is good for reducing fatalities. But they got superb results. Fatalities were reduced by 36% as a result of the system, and it's now uniform worldwide because you are focusing in on those little really tiny mistakes that can have, uh, you think there's a minor, but they end up being uh, uh, big mistakes. Also, you want to have the cart there that has the plasma, plasma, uh, the antibiotics, the blood, the whatever that's needed uh, in case it comes up. So you have, you're prepared for the tiny little, uh, tiny little items on the checklist, as well as the checklist itself. A very successful system, which has, again, saved hundreds and probably thousands of lives worldwide. And that can be applied to when you're making a birdhouse, you're putting together a garden. That kind of a checklist system can be uh, useful to, to anybody in uh, the mundane as well as the more sophisticated fields out there. You, you mentioned, you, you call the checklist humble. And I think that's an important point because you go through the checklist and it all sounds so simple. It's so, so obvious and almost, almost a plodding process, but that's okay. Uh, that, that's the point. Often it can be overconfidence that leads, or maybe routine, just a, a routine sense that leads to a little forgetfulness now and then. Yes, you raise a good point there. In fact, when they were first introducing the checklist system uh, back there at Boeing, the objection was the pilots uh, with years of experience, of course, they've got their egos. I don't have to have this kind of checklist. Who are you talking to here? But then they remembered uh, the mistake was made by one of the very best pilots at Boeing, one of the most respected pilots that they had uh, at Boeing made that one tiny little mistake. If he could make that mistake, anybody could. And so that uh, there was a, the program was very successful and was accepted both uh, by the pilots as well as, of course, by medical doctors as well. Yeah. What is the story you tell of General Matthew Ridgway? Who was he? Yes, he was. Uh, that is a story with a happy ending. And I say in the book near the end, we've had so many negative stories, sad stories, things turning out wrong. It's nice to have a refreshing story where uh, people uh, stood up to groupthink and people stood up to authority to do the right thing. And it was an interesting story. This did not get a lot of publicity. It was kind of embarrassing to the, ally, to the allies, so I don't think that's why it's been discussed very much. But here's what was happening. Uh, uh, after Italy had been invaded, the Italians were willing to switch sides. They didn't want anything to do with the Nazis anymore. Things were looking uh, very bad. Uh, of course, the Allies had conquered Sicily. They'd invaded Italy. And so they had secret negotiations with the Italians, and the Italians were going to switch sides. And the plan was this. They were going to have an airdrop of uh, paratroopers, 82nd Airborne, which was put in by gliders, in near Rome. The uh, Roman army there, the, the Roman and uh, Italian army there in that area, I'm going to switch sides and join the allies. <clears throat> uh, they were then going to <clears throat> together attack the, uh, the Germans and uh, capture Rome in one great big uh, bold uh, coup, one great big bold stroke. Well, Matthew Ridgway was the commander of the 82nd Airborne, and he was saying, well, I've seen these ideas coming down from above, and they have cost the lives of a lot of men because they weren't that well thought of, not very well thought out. This is kind of a harebrained idea. 
I'm not sure I, uh, I think it's going to work. And he kept going to his superiors and, and they're saying, be quiet. You're only a, he was a, uh, he was a one or two star general there. He was, he was talking to three and four star generals and five star generals. And they were not willing to listen to him. But finally, he got to talk to Eisenhower and he said, uh, he persuaded Eisenhower, let me take Maxwell Taylor, who is my general in charge of artillery. Uh, he said, speaks language as well, along with another intelligence officer. They'll be disguised as American uh, POWs. They'll be smuggled in to, uh, to the Rome area. Uh, the Italians will take them in as, as though they're prisoners of war. They'll meet with the Italians, double-check everything, make sure that everything the Italians are promising is really going to take place. Well, okay, they do that. And then Maxwell Taylor uh, is meeting with the Italians, and he's shocked to learn that they're backing out of the entire enterprise. The Germans were suspicious of the Italians. They withheld gasoline from them. They were not going to give them uh, much uh, much operating room, much latitude. And they were thinking about to talk to the uh, president of, uh, of Italy. He wanted to scrap the entire idea and back out of the idea of even joining the Allies. Also, even worse, turns out uh, the intelligence was faulty about the number of German troops in the area. They had a large number of uh, armored troops, uh, and, uh, panzer uh, troops there, uh, far more heavily reinforced, far more heavy in strength than was anticipated before. It was clear there's going to be a suicide mission. 3,000 airborne troops coming in by gliders, no Italians to help them, uh, armored troops, uh, the uh, air, air troopers, airborne troopers, would have rifles and machine guns and hand grenades. They would have no heavy weapons at all. Here they'd be facing tanks. It would have been an absolute massacre. So he sends the information back by radio uh, back to the uh, the Allies. Uh, at that point, they were in Sicily. Okay, and then he got no response. And then he was given permission to use this one word, situation inoculus. And that meant it was absolutely hopeless. The entire thing should be canceled automatically and completely. Well, he did that. The information goes to Eisenhower. He learns, uh, Eisenhower learns what's happening. The Italians are trying to back out of the deal. And he starts to write a note to the Italian uh, uh, leaders. He gets his pencil. He's so angry. He writes with his pencil. He breaks the pencil. And he gets another pencil. He's writing so angry. He's writing it. And he's, by the way, a man known for his explosive temper. And he breaks the pencil again. So he can't write out the note. So he has to dictate the note telling the Italians are not going to be allowed to back out of it. The announcement is going to be made that they've joined the Allies, and there's no changing the course, number one. And then number two, they canceled the entire operation. The entire airborne operation was being canceled. Now they had to run out there on the tarmac and wave their hands in front of the uh, pilots. The, the, the uh, guidance planes were already in the air. The uh, uh, planes carrying the paratroopers were about to take off. They ran out there and waved them down, waved them down, and stopped them and stopped the entire uh, operation just at the at the last minute, and uh, they uh, Matthew Ridgeway, uh, General Ridgeway, sat down with another officer with a bottle of liquor and drank and just cried and cried because they came so close to being killed themselves and having so many young men killed who were allowed to live, who became fathers and grandfathers, but whose lives would have been lost that night if it had not been for the courage of Ridgeway standing up to his superiors. Now you think, well, okay, now he's a big hero. He saved a lot of people who were being killed. No. Uh, the, uh, it was uh, Beetle Smith and the other people at the high command were kind of resentful of the fact that they'd been, they'd been made to look bad. So uh, Maxwell Taylor and Ridgway were under a kind of unofficial censure just in general because you, when, when you make your boss looks bad, <laughs> look bad, it's usually a bad thing, and that's what happened there. But he was never sorry. 
he went on to become the uh, commander in the Korean War, did brilliant work there, and he would never regretted it because he said uh, he, it was uh, a huge load off of his mind that so many young men had not or would not have died that uh, that night in uh, great futility. Hmm. The book is Tiny Blunders, Big Disasters, 39 Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. We have much more to to mention. You could talk about the great you talk about the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, Stonewall Jackson, the death of Jackson. There's quote the bathroom break that started a war. <laughs> we talk, right. How about the the little piece of tape from 1972? I'm not going to don't say what that's about. Uh, uh, Jerry, we're gonna we're gonna let our our readers some of those cool, we'll, we'll figure out whether. But uh, that is the book, Thirty Nine Mistakes That Changed the World Forever. Jared Knott, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And you get the book TinyBlundersBigDisasters.com. We have a great website there. We have two and a half free chapters. We have a special. You can get the electronic download for just a dollar ninety nine uh, this week only. Excellent. Thank you, Jared. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.